Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Another episode. This one, uh, questions from uh, Tamar Mamoon, who had emailed me about uh, wanting to do something, and then I saw him at the Industry Summit and got to meet in person and talk about uh, his interesting background. And I thought, this will be fun. He's got his own channel. And I thought, we'll just kind of simulcast and he can use uh, what he wants to use and I'll use what I want to use. And so I've kind of chopped it up. It's mainly his questions, a very uh, uh, pensive, insightful uh, guy that comes at it from a, a music background, which I thought was extremely interesting. And so I've been uh, playing around with that. Uh, thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huck the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So enjoy the time with Tamar. Might enjoy it with uh, some of you who might want to contact me as Tamar did. Uh, it seemed like there's a lot of interesting people in this industry. So thanks, Tamar, and here is our conversation. I worked really hard for many years to be able to retire and enjoy the hobby as a hobby now. How is it different as a hobby as opposed to running it as a business? I started as a hobby. So I remember that day I was a hobbyist, but I was an advanced collector and a serious dealer. So, and there weren't many other options in the seventies. There weren't many stores. There weren't that many card shows. So it's just the beginning, but it was a lot of fun. In fact, it was, I hate to say it more fun then when it was smaller because <laughs> mm. you knew everybody and uh, cards were cheaper and you could get these Fabulous cards for not as much money and really enjoy them. Everybody knew everybody. Then I worked really hard, had a business, sold it. And now I'm remembering what it was like to just be a collector and go to a show and not have any responsibilities other than just to meet old friends and uh, buy, sell, trade, whatever. You have a background in data, yeah, stats and all that. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the influence and evolution of data in collectibles and on the hobby? Because to me, you're like the person who created the Dewey Decimal System. Back in the day, the data was hard to get, but easy to synthesize. Now the data is easy to get, but hard to synthesize. <laughs> because of grading, because of so many different SKUs, or so many different cards, that the way I did it, the way we did it back in the early days, would not be possible now. Mm -hmm. Because it was a more finite number of cards, and like I said, a lot less data. But once you got the data from the reliable sources... It wasn't as hard to put it together as it is now. Now we're dealing with big data. Uh, you really need to automate a lot of the process. A lot of it's eBay. A lot of it's these uh, digital platforms. So a different challenge, I would say. Of course, I'm talking about 40 plus years ago. It was a different challenge, a challenge nonetheless. Now there are just so many cards and so many one of ones and one of tens. And it's very challenging. Yeah, it seems like there's a saturation of all that. So it's hard for people to differentiate what has real value and what doesn't. They have a hard time, except that somehow they find prices that they're apparently comfortable to pay. And dealers have prices they're comfortably willing to sell the cards for. Because I think a lot of these cards now are not selling as much by auction as they are by fixed price, where you throw something out there, if it sells then that's the price. That's the new comp. Even though it could be one person paying a crazy price. When we were doing the price guides back in the day, always trying to find the price that a willing, knowledgeable seller would sell to a willing, knowledgeable buyer. And so not a distress sale and not a frenzy, but then there weren't that many one of ones then. You'd think, I can't get it this time. I'll pay a fair price next time. Since there's these new challenges, what would you suggest to 
someone who is a buyer now that wants to get into collecting that isn't very knowledgeable about this whole ecosystem of cards and how can they navigate through that and find something and not get some kind of predatory thing where they're being bilked out of their money because like it seems like that's an honorable way to have done the aggregate of data is by a knowledgeable seller and a knowledgeable buyer and there's no kind of predatory one-upsman kind of thing going on it's just a fair trade so in this new ecosystem how can someone find a fair deal that way there's these comp places like on ebay and all these things where you can find the kind of aggregates where they've collected a lot of data but where else can they go to do that there's a, a false sense of security with comp early in the way you're phrasing the question if there's only one comp then you have to have knowledge to know is that an exception or is that representative of what like i said a willing knowledgeable seller and a willing knowledgeable buyer so even one comp could be okay or it could be misleading the fallacy that has happened in our industry that's been exposed in the last year from maybe 18 months ago, is that people erroneously thought when there's an abundance of comps on a certain card, then that means the price is really solid. Hmm. But in some cases, it meant there's a lot of those cards out there. <laughs> the pop report is huge yeah. for some of these base rookie cards. And even though the comps are very consistent, it's a card that is so readily available that if there's the slightest downturn in the player's performance or people decide to chase something else, uh, you, you may have overpaid, even though a lot of other people were overpaying too, because you didn't understand the scarcity, not just the comp, the, the supply and demand both factor into it. And yeah. if you just only look at the comps and take them without further analysis, you wouldn't be the only one that would have a bad deal, but you could be with a whole bunch of people that overpay because they blindly follow the comps. I think that's really astute. A lot of people look at the comps and they are not looking at the whole picture when they're just focusing so much on what something else sold for that's similar. Where else can they find that information so that they can be more informed buyers and sellers and all that? Let me give you one other part of the puzzle that we did that I don't think other people were doing when we were doing it back a long time ago. It's not just the comps of what's sold, but you can use your eyes and your ears through social media, whatever platform, any place where cards are sold to see what is not selling at what price, especially if it's graded. If you see that here's a card that's available at this price, it's not selling, it's still available but then there's a comp that says it's this price. You have to factor in the fact that even if that's the comp, if it's available at that other price right in front of your eyes at a card show, or if you're at, at Burbank and you're looking at the, the showcase and it's right there and you can buy it and maybe even get a little bit better price. So if the comp is higher, then I don't want to pay the comp. I want to pay the lowest price. If you're circulating around to shows and larger card shops, and other digital platforms where cards are sold, if those kind of graded cards are fungible, in other words, if it's a nine or an eight or something, and it's the same or 10 even, and the same kind of card, and you would know enough from the market to know then if you're at a card show, hey, the latest comps are this guy has it for this lower price. Relatively, I think it's a good deal. That would be more relevant for someone who's looking to perhaps flip the card and not keep it. Because I think there's a different perspective for someone who wants to hold on to the card and just have it. 
as opposed to someone who just wants to deal and trade and do, you know. The operative word that you use there is the. If somebody, someone is looking for the card, they're at a disadvantage right from the start because their demand, their possibilities are focused on the one card. If you had a list of cards, these are my, not necessarily grail cards, but these are cards I really want to add this year, 2022, 2023. These are the cards I really want to get, and I want to get a good price for them. If you have a longer list and you know what your strike price is, then you can't be held hostage by the person that has the card that you want and can see that you're salivating (laughs) to buy the card. And like I say, you're at a disadvantage because somehow they're good poker players. They can tell that you want that card. They're not going to come off the price because it is a tough card. So having a more expanded uh, want list of things, I think helps you to say, if I can't get that, and then the, the dealer will change his or her tune. If you say, I'm really looking for that card, but I'm looking for some others. And if that's your price, then I'm just going to go over next door here because this other guy's got a card that I want for the same price, but it's a better deal. So unless you come down, I'm at the show to buy some cards that I need, whether it's the national or other big show. And I'd love to buy your card, but don't tell them it's the most wanted on your want list. Just say, it's on my list, but this other one's on the list. I'm going to spend my money somewhere. If you can come down, it'll be you. If not, I'm going to go to the dealer across the hall or you know, some other place. So the leverage that people have, they they have no leverage. If it's well known, they're really mainly looking for one card or one player. So a little bit of focus is good. Too much focus can get you in trouble. I can see how that can be a pitfall being trapped by desire for a particular card. But I think the solution for collectors is a very good one. Just have more stuff you want to collect. The trend now is to have smaller and smaller collections. Mm. And to keep trading up for bigger and bigger cards. If you have three medium-sized cards, three $100 cards, you're going to trade it in for a $300 card. Or three $1,000 cards for a $3,000 card. Or three $10,000 cards for a $30,000 card. That plays into what we're saying. Is that if they can see that you want the one big card, and the one big card is generally tougher to get than the three medium cards, you may have difficulty getting good value in your trade. So it's like poker. You're bluffing that I have this to trade. If you want this, that's fine. If not, I'll get Because if you've got three $10,000 cards and you want a $30,000 card, the dealer would know you can cash out those 10,000 cards as well. They're going to be really good cards too. With each card having its own value, does it equate? like that always not necessarily i I would imagine it depends because if those three cards could exponentially grow or that one card could exponentially grow and over time that deal may not there's a lot of factors that go into that what was not a problem when i got started and again this is almost 50 years ago is it trading within the same set not a problem trading the same player I've got a Mickey Mantle. You've got a Mickey Mantle. If one of them is older or newer, adjustments could be made. So they didn't need a price guide for same player or same set. But when you're talking about a different player in a different set with a different serial number, with a different whatever, all of a sudden it gets very complicated. Hmm. And so then the, the comps you're looking at, hopefully they're current comps, something that's recent. It can't be last year's comp or that could be misleading. But even if they're yesterday's comps, generally it's the dealer that pulls the trigger on these deals, I think. The dealer is behind the table, is there to try to sell. And so they're doing a mental calculus of whether or not they think their player is a better bet for future demand than the player comparing because it's apples and oranges. If somebody's got Bryce Harper and he's in the World Series, that's different than 
Mike Trout, who also is great, but hasn't even been in the postseason and still is an icon. Many of these dealers and collectors are fans. They have loyalties and appreciations for the player and the potential of that player to make the Hall of Fame and win MVPs and win championships and all that stuff. So they're doing that. And so if they think their card is trending up and your card is trending down, they're going to want to make the trade accordingly. And And the dealer should get an edge. The dealer has expenses. The dealer should get an edge. It shouldn't be an even trade. The dealer should get a better deal because he's paying all those expenses. He or she. There's a lot to digest there with the quality of the accomplishments and the sentimentality. And a lot of that is subjective then. Yes. That's what makes it so difficult to have pricing. You're acting surprised that it's subjective. Of course it's subjective. That's part of the dynamic element of it. That's what makes it interesting. It doesn't mean there's not skill involved, but there's a lot of uncertainty too. There's injuries. Your teammates can let you down. You could have a great season, but your teammates do terrible. The dynamic element is what makes it exciting that you can't know for sure. But if you're armed with knowledge, some experience from the past and knowing what's going on right now, I like my chances. I'm going to be right more often than I'll be wrong. Because like you were saying, I'm going to compare to other players in the same sets or different sets. I have lots of alternatives to where to spend my money. And so I'm going to spend my money where I think I'm getting a good deal. And that good deal is more determined whether you're a flipper or a buy and hold guy, 10 years later, the first 10 years of Albert Pujols' career, he was legendary. And the last 10 years, he was pretty ordinary. And yet he built up enough home runs and stuff, and he's got 700 home runs that is newly appreciated based on his career stats. But the first 10 years, he was spectacular. It did not continue at that same level. And yet he's still going to be a popular player. And so you can't know that. You know, he's, he still had some really good seasons, but not at the same level. Trout yeah. could be the same way. Brady was an exception. Brady's got 20 years. The first 10 years, he was great. You would never expect him the next 10 years to also be great and bring home these Super Bowl trophies. Now he's done it with more than one coach, more than one team. Now I don't want to jinx him, but it looks like age is maybe catching up to him this year. But anybody that was getting on the Brady train in 2010, or 2012, somewhere in there, thinking that, hey, he's great, but maybe I'm going to sell because he's already hit the plateau or something. I think that's what makes it fun in the industry. The price guides always are time sensitive. They always were and always will be. It's just timeframes have speeded up. So things move a lot faster now. 